organizations, brands that you've observed are doing this well, what are they doing differently? Well, I think they're focused less on how many people they're reaching, but who. And to me, that's probably been the biggest disnomer of digital since I started writing about it in you know the early 90s. It was the ability for a brand and business to really hone in on who their customer and or potential customer could be. But instead, it became a game of reach. And that was propagated by the platforms who were trying to compete against traditional media for ad dollars and other forms of monetization. And it's also just propagated by the fact that brands are on the drip. I mean, that's what they believe they need. If I get my message out to as many people as possible, the smallest percentage of them who might be my customers will convert. I never believed that to be true about digital. I felt that the targeting, the ability to personalize, the ability to get to the inbox, the ability to socialize with customers is really panacea. Hi there, this is David Knorr. Welcome to the third season of the Curve Vendors podcast. I'm so excited after years of research and interviews and due diligence on this topic to finally be able to publish Curve Vendors this year. It'll be my 11th book as a follow-on to Relationship Economics and Co-Create. Curve Vendors, in essence, are your strategic relationships that enable your non-linear growth in the future. Our research points to 15 forces that we believe will dramatically impact the future of how you'll work, how you'll live, how you'll play, and how you'll give. The global pandemic is just one example. So how will you remain relevant if more disruption will come at us more often with potentially far greater impact? In each episode, I want to share with you insights, great ideas from guests I've invited to join us, as well as practical ideas in the evolution of your skills, your knowledge, your behaviors, and most importantly, what I believe is your biggest asset, which is your portfolio of relationships. I call those relationships your curve benders. So let's get started. Hi, everybody. Nor here. Just a quick heads up that we're constantly updating our new website, norgroup.com, with new blog posts, podcast episodes like this one, links to my Forbes and Inc. articles, and a new intimate community called the Nor Forum. It's a place where like-minded professionals are gathering to learn, share, and grow through insights about strategic relationships, visual storytelling, and nonlinear growth. This is also where you find articles, poll questions, and some great discussions. For example, earlier today, there is an article on how to be more productive in the post-pandemic world. I am hosting a longtime friend, Diane Ryan, a retired Army colonel and a leadership development expert at West Point on an upcoming podcast and live stream. There are interesting folks sharing uh, really gender equality questions and challenges. There is, I shared a unique insights about the Persian New Year. So a lot of great content where companies go wrong with learning and development. Here's a poll question on how are you thinking about planning for or leading differently in your business or role in the post-COVID world. So we're up to about a thousand folks, all professionals, all from all around the world, really talking a lot about their relationship challenges and opportunities, how do we effectively communicate, 
How do we really learn more, learn it faster, and apply those to solve challenges and opportunities? So I hope you come join us at norgroup.com slash forum. That's norgroup.com slash forum. Welcome back to another episode of the Curve Benders Podcast. I'm elated to be joined by Mitch Joel, a recent Thinkers 50 friend. Mitch, welcome. David, it's a pleasure to be here and really great to connect with you. It's great to have you. For those that may not know as much about your background, would you start with a couple of minutes of your professionally, where you've been, what you've done, and your focus now? Oh, I'm a hodgepodge, hot mess of innovation, media, and technology. I started off as a music journalist in the late 80s, then helped launch one of the first search engines before Google existed. I was in the mobile content space when there was no such thing as a smartphone or mobile web browser. I started a record label. I was a publisher of magazines online and offline. And then back in the early 2000s, I started a digital marketing agency with some other partners, which we grew and then wound up selling to WPP about six years ago. And I've been independent for the past three years, primarily speaking, writing, podcasting. And during the tenure of my digital marketing agency, I became somewhat known amongst my family and friends primarily for my blog and podcast called Six Pixels of Separation, which was also the name of my first book. I then published a second book called Control Alt Delete. And like I said, there are a lot of road miles and air miles speaking and talking about the intersections of brands, consumers, and technology and all things innovation. So can you comment on, we're now 13 months into this global pandemic. Talk about the, the big trends you're seeing that you believe will stay with us in the post-pandemic world. Well, I think digital commerce in general would be the catch-all for this, right? You're talking about a world where pre-pandemic we were... In a world of about 15% of all commerce was digital during the pandemic, it went to you know 70s and 80s in certain regions. It's not falling back to 15% amongst the people in our industry. We talked about the 30-30 rule that by 2030, we would hit 30% of all commerce, which obviously we cratered within the first half of the global pandemic. And that seems to be a number that has been stuck and sticking in that range is, is kind of the thinking. We're not sure a million percent. We'll see where it goes. But the ramifications of that are massive. You know, one is it's something I call the Great Compression, which is that, you know, from the beginning of the pandemic, right away, we had everybody from our youngest kids uh, online learning digitized to our oldest elderly, where we were sliding iPads under their doors so we could stay in contact and have FaceTime with them to this habitual place. You know, we talk about habits taking 30 days to form. Well, this has been a lot longer than 30 days. And the ways in which businesses have adapted to the digital commerce environment that they've been forced into, I call it forced innovation. I think, you know, if we're talking macro and we want to keep it tight, that would be the one. And, and probably everything that we talk about will stem in a certain way back out to this reality that we have become so enabled and empowered, not just because of technology, but the transactional aspect of it. That to me is the is, is the eight hundred pound gorilla here, without a doubt. Digital marketing, I got to tell you, I have a love hate relationship. Love when it works, it's brilliant. Conversely, Mitch, a lot of it seems to be just contributing to the noise. Organizations, brands that you have observed are doing this well. What are they doing differently? Well, I think they're focused less on how many people they're reaching, but who. And to me, that's probably been the biggest disnomer of digital since I started writing about it in you know the early 90s. It was the ability for a brand and business to really hone in on who their customer and or potential customer could be 
but instead it became a game of reach. And that was propagated by the platforms who were trying to compete against traditional media for ad dollars and other forms of monetization. And it's also just propagated by the fact that brands are on the drip. I mean, that's what they believe they need. If I get my message out to as many people as possible, the smallest percentage of them who might be my customers will convert. I never believed that to be true about digital. I felt that the targeting, the ability to personalize, the ability to get to the inbox, the ability to socialize with customers is really panacea. And if done well, and if done effectively, you're you're doing two things at the same time. You're building both a platform for storytelling on the one side, and the other side, you're been building one of the most powerful direct response engines anybody could have ever thought to build fairly on the cheap. I mean, you know, cheap is is a question mark. What does that look like? But the advertising models have clearly failed. If we look at the advertising models of the digital platforms, they are fairly monopolistic. There's a handful of them. They're very expensive. They become so sophisticated that if you have a new business or a new business idea and you speak to your rep, they know what the value is of the click or customer way better than you probably even will know because of all the historical data that they have that they've not only created as a first party, but have acquired through third party acquisitions as well. So this this feeling of love-hate is reasonable, but it's not really practical. And it's not really practical because... The brands who have embraced this, and we've seen a lot of them come out in what they're calling the DTC, the direct-to-consumer revolution, which again is triggered by this whole e-commerce world, they've been very effective at focusing not on reach, but on who and that type of targeting. Is it perfect? No. Are there privacy issues? Yeah. Is there all sorts of marketers doing what marketers do to ruin marketing? Yeah. I mean, there's all that stuff for sure. But the ones that keep it tight, the ones that, that do it well... I think are flourishing in ways their businesses could probably never flourish before we had this digitization of media. I've often said that I learn as much, if not more, about my books after they're published because people will read them and have their own ideas and perspectives that they want to share. Are there some insights from either Six Pixels or Control-Alt-Delete that after you've wrote them, either reinforce some of your key ideas or refute them? Well, it's interesting. I don't, I'm not one to really go back. And I can't candidly tell you, David, that I've gone back and really reread my books. I haven't. Control-Alt-Delete is about eight years old. So six pixels of separation has to be coming up to a decade, at least, if not a little bit more. What I hear anecdotally from people who have picked them up recently is how prescient this stuff is. And I think part of it has to do with my constant content creation flow, which is I create three to four pieces of content, whether it's articles or podcasts or live radio hits every single week. So there's an evolution of what what was core in the book. And the book really was also a culmination of so much content that I had created for the years up until the books got written and published. But for me, the story remains the same. This idea of I care more about who, not how many, was a part of that. This idea of we live in a world where everyone is connected now and how do we connect our business in a meaningful way is literally the subtitle of my first book. Uh, even the title of it, Six Pixels of Separation, right? It wasn't about six degrees of separation or six degrees of Kevin Bacon. It was in this digitized world, we are all intrinsically connected. How do we operate and engage as a business and as individuals within that business? So to me, it, what I've heard is it, it feels very, very fresh and or they had wished they had read it a decade ago because they would have been more prepared for today. So it's been very flattering, the success that both books have had. But I do feel that those books are just nodes on a longer continuum 
that I continue to do literally day in and day out, whether it's short form content, long form content, live, pre-recorded, whatever it might be. So to me, they're just part of the path of what, how do we decode the future? What does the future look like? What does the present look like? And, and probably because of the pandemic and this concept that we talked about earlier, this great compression, it feels more immediate. I would say the things that were written in the book that people felt might be, let's see when we get there, became, okay, we didn't do that. Now we have to catch up and or how do we build it in an, in an effective way for today's time? So as you and I discussed, curve benders are strategic relationships in the future of work. Extrapolate those two ideas forward for us. The digital commerce, how do you believe it will evolve in the next next decade? So if you look at what happened during the pandemic, I think there was a very obvious to me thing. Let's go with physical shopping first. We're going to use retail as the example because we can take and pull from it, whether you're B2B, B2C, small, medium, large, you can grab from this example. But physical stores, typically social things, this idea of shopping. You went to the Apple store during the pandemic, and this all was dependent on where you lived and your level of lockdown and all that sort of politicalness and craziness and health stuff. But the Apple store went from being experiential to being very transactional. You'd line up, they'd give you, they'd make you take your mask off and give you the, one of their masks. They would take your temperature, put you in line, depending on if you needed help or products or whatever it might be. And then when you went in, it was none of the experience that we've ever known Apple to be. You couldn't touch anything. If you wanted to see something, you would, you would typically be trailed as if you were somebody in communist Russia by the KGB throughout the store. You had a tail on you and it became extremely transactional and contactlessness. So that was one aspect of it. If you look online where we had a lot of this push towards e-commerce, we know that e-commerce is primarily transactional. It's more of a buying experience than a shopping experience. And what happened to me, which is endemic of what you're asking, is the physical stores figured out how to get much better and quicker at being transactional. And I do believe that some of the smarter stores online were grappling with and or testing and or deploying models by which People were doing more than just buying, but actually browsing, shopping, and being more engaged. A lot of the tools have been there for a while, but I feel like they were pulled out and brought out more. And I also think that we had a lot more new startups really thinking about how do you do quote-unquote experiential things digitally. So that is a good analogy to how we should think about business in general. How do we make our physical spaces more transactional, quicker, easier to navigate? How do we make our digital experiences more engaging, connective, story-based, shopping-like? And that in and of itself, I think, is the real hurdle we're going to be facing going forward. Can you give us an example of that experiential things digitally? Yeah, there are many startups, again, we'll stick in the retail space that are doing things like, well, there's a local e-commerce company called SalesFloor. And what they're trying to do, or they are doing very successfully, is allowing sales associates from a myriad of retailers to build their own pages within the confines of the dot-com. So imagine having your own sales associate who's your private shopper, but in and of themselves, they're also promoting themselves and the things in the store that they most love. So that would be an example of really creating a connection. They're also expanding that technology, by the way, beyond sales associates and allowing almost anybody to become a sales associate of the store if they want to, which is a really fascinating model. The other one, and I don't know the name of the company, but there are a couple of them, are developing almost gaming engine-like infrastructures for online shopping experiences. So imagine if you're doing some form of Middle Eastern product launch, just or thematically, 
you could hold your store at the pyramids as an example and create almost like a gaming experience. Uh, one example of this, you could YouTube or Google it to find the YouTube video would be Complex Media. They had something called Complex Land, which was instead of their trade show, it was like a virtual trade show meets video game, meets product launch with different stores and different art art exhibitions. That whole thing has been fantastically powerful. And then I wouldn't really be a, a smart digital person if I didn't just throw the word NFT at you, <laughs> the, the non-fungible token, as one of the next iterations of what digital is going to do very dramatically and very differently coming forward. I want to come back to NFTs in a second, but let's talk about this evolution of who versus reach, how many. How about that world? Do you believe, how do you believe it will evolve in the next decade? Well, I mean, it's a problematic one because ultimately right now, the technology to be very effective with that already exists. It's just, we're still on that drip. We're still on that drug IV drip of of having the, the perspective emotionally and philosophically that we need this message to reach as many people as possible. So what needs to happen there is we have to have significant behavioral change within the C-suite that the problem isn't the fact that not enough people know who our message is, but rather that our message isn't resonating enough with the people who should care. Now, what has to happen there, I, I couldn't even begin to tell you because some people have built their businesses on the basis of that being their philosophy, but the vast majority of businesses don't feel that way or feel perhaps that their discernible market is of such substantive size that it doesn't matter. That we, It doesn't matter really who, it matters that we reach the how many. And there may in fact be many products like this. We could argue that household products might have the, you know, some of the CPG stuff for sure. But again, who and what are you trying to attract and how are you catering to those markets? And you know, one great place to look to see how the divisiveness or, or nicheness of it exists is the toy market. You could look at something like even Hot Wheels cars. You know, it's a dollar product that you assume is for the four or five year old boy in your life to push cars around. And I'm not being, you know, sexist or genderless. It's typically who they're marketing to. And yet now they do things like premium lines. And there are a lot of older people who have much, you know, have discretionable income who are collecting them. And so they've created treasure hunts or rare ones. They call them chases in the business. There are crazy YouTubers who are super passionate about hitting every single store that sells Hot Wheels to go through them to find the treasure hunts or the ones they like. Hot Wheels listening to the market, creating certain brands and licensing against it. Lego would be another example of that where it's not just for the market you think it's for, but you're now building against a niche market that perhaps you could charge more for. So the cars that were 94 cents at your local Walmart are now in the 7 or $8 range for the same type of vehicle. Maybe it's more premium, there's more metal than plastic, but they're reaching other markets because they're realizing through the online channels that they exist. Collectibles, all these areas become interesting to companies who spend time thinking not just about reaching the mass market, but what are the niches within that mass market that we might be able to provide a premium product or service to. Over the weekend, I made the mistake of trying to explain NFTs to several friends, and I think I had them royally confused of, so what? Talk about the implications you see. I mean, I read that Tom Brady is starting a company with other, several other athletes. You know, Coinbase recently went public. Talk about the implication of NFTs and, again, where you see it going and how it may impact kind of the rest of the, the, the digital asset, unique, collectible space? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it extends well beyond the headlines. The headlines are the hype, but what's underneath the hype? Uh, NFT, a non-fungible token, is in a very pragmatic way, a massive shift of the digitized world. The shift of the digital world as prior to the shift, what did we have? We had a world of abundance. If I have an image, a JPEG file, and I send it to you, David, you don't really have a copy of that file. You have your own original version of this file. There is no degradation of it. There is no uh, way for me to know you th- that yours wasn't the first or mine was the second or five millionth version that we've created that is essentially an original. So a world of abundance on every type of digital file, without a doubt. NFTs have created a world of scarcity where we could take that one JPEG, mine, mine it as an NFT, which would be the same way you would mine a cryptocurrency to make it quote unquote original. It would assign it digital data that makes its its provenance exact to that, therefore making it the only one and or one of a series of how many. So it's easy to think, well, people, artists selling a JPEG for close to $70 million, that sounds absurd because anybody could see that picture anywhere. It's a JPEG file. I could send it to you right now. But we could make the argument that this is the same with the Mona Lisa, right? The, the original is in the museum, but if I really want one, I can grab a picture online. I can get a painting of it. I can get a poster of it. I could have it on my hat. I can do whatever I want with the image. So it's not about the actual image. It's not about that. It's about the provenance of it. What is the actual original? What is the first one or what is the one? And that is what NFTs have really brought forward. So I avoid the cursory examples like the ones you gave about the craziness of this and the the mad rush and trying to understand the art scene market, which was crazy before the world of NFTs existed for sure. And I think about it more in terms of how functionally different is our world if we can assign provenance and a complete originality to a digital asset. Now, if you extend that into the world of business and commerce, it becomes pretty mind-boggling. Now, is it perfect? No. Are there environmental impacts and issues? Yes. Is there issues in, in other parts of, of all of this thinking? Absolutely. Does it skew right now towards rich white males who are doing silly things? Yes. But at its core, thinking that digital as a product can have a form of scarcity, I think is a, 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 a massive shock to the system and also a massive shift in how we will see content going forward. I mean, it's, un, it's impractical to do this, David, but imagine if every copy of your book in and of itself was an original NFT in one way, shape, or form. It could be a variance of covers. It could be a variance in words. It could be something. And you, in, 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 to a certain degree, would be able to really understand where every copy of this book has been. These are profound shifts. Think about in terms of we have smart contracts already, but think about assigning NFTs to a deed. Think about assigning it to a product or service line where you might create an NFT level of it that is unique for a certain level of customer. So again, to me, this is a, a massive shift in everything we thought we knew about digital. I, I had Tiffany Bova, who's also a Thinkers 50 friend of both of ours She's on great, a yeah. previous episode. And, and, and she talked a lot about B2E. And the reason I bring that up is you've brought up, and obviously you've got deep domain expertise in consumer behaviors, expectations, relationships. Uh, Mitch, translate that to the impact it has on the B2B world. So as a consumer, I read up on NFTs, I might, you know, acquire a digital asset, not just NFTs, but but the whole notion of this this extrapolating 
kind of some of these technologies forward in a B2B world? What does that look like? And what do PNL leaders need to pay particular attention to in really the evolution of their role and their leadership capacity? Part of, of, of the contention that some people might have with my work is that I try to obscure the fact that I don't feel that there's much of a difference between B2B and B2C, which to some has been heresy. But in further pushing that thought out, I, I've spoken with people like Ann Handley, who runs the Marketing Profs B2B Forum, who would agree wholeheartedly with what I'm saying. And I've often pushed many who are specialized in B2B to prove me wrong. And I think with the exception of procurement and heavily regulated industries, and even then one could argue there isn't much of a difference still. I mean, even if you are in a heavily regulated industry, even if you are in an industry that is purely procurement driven, ultimately you have two roles as a business, which is how are we going to to build a better story than our competitors so that we get chosen for that procurement process or we get aligned with this heavily regulated industry? And the other one is how effective are we at communicating and building those relationships in that direct response model to also capture the other side of it. So are there nuances in the language? Yes. Are there nuances in understanding the industry in specific that you're marketing to or speaking to because they have their own language, they have their own vernacular, what I call a a brand, they might call a company, what I call a consumer, they might call a customer or an affiliate or a partner. Yes, 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 and yes. Can you be more strategic with things like account-based marketing? Absolutely. It's harder to do when you're moving in the more B2C era, I think. It's just a longer, harder slog. But overall, I, 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 don't, I don't really discern much beyond that between the two. And again, that might be too simplistic for some to hear, and I apologize if it is, but that's the way I feel. Let's talk about storytelling. You've brought it up a couple of times. How do you see stories evolving? Again, some you hear, you see, you experience, and you're just over the moon of how timely and tight and focused and hard-hitting and compelling it is, and the other ones just keep contributing to the noise. So talk about brilliant storytelling as a, as a real sustainable differentiator. Well, brilliant storytelling is in the eyes of the beholder. There's no doubt about that. But the truth is that we do live in a world of text, images, audio, and video. We do live in a world where you could do things in short form or long form content. We do live in a world where you could do live and or pre-record content which means that the complete palette of opportunity is open to any brand to tell their story in a unique, powerful, and compelling way. What that looks like, you know, it's subjective. That's, that's the question of, of, of what is good art. David, I cannot answer the question of what is good art because I'm sure a lot of the art that I think is brilliant, you would have A, never heard of, or B, wouldn't care to consume at all. But, but the engine this text, images, audio, video, this live or pre-recorded, this short form, long form is discernible and accessible to every single business that exists. And to me, that just creates a level of need and desire. It used to be very hard for businesses to reach their discernible market. There were gatekeepers. It was very hard. It was dominated by the 800-pound gorillas. But if we've seen anything through the evolution, the world of Shopify, the world of YouTube, etc., your ability to tell your story has never been easier and more available to you. So how it evolves is simply in the creativity, imagination, and uniqueness of the businesses that are willing to raise their hand and say, we're going to tell a different story that we hope is very compelling to this audience. 
We're going to live our values. We're going to live our systems and we're going to share them. And then hopefully we're going to find that marketplace because others are afraid to. And again, to the victor goes the spoils. Talk about fear. (laughs) One of my struggles with several very mature companies and very mature industries, Mitch, is that their unwillingness to think and lead differently, particularly Think of big industrial players. Think of, and again, those recognizable SMP brands that have been around for, for a really long time. How did they remain relevant in this constantly evolving set of consumer, customer expectations? It's a great question. I recently did a virtual keynote for a company in a very heavily regulated industry in the B2B world. And in the pre-call, we talked a little bit about what their needs were. And it was an interesting conversation where they said, we are legacy. We are the number one player in the space. Our second competition isn't even close to us. We are the de facto people who will get the call. And usually when the number two player gets the call, it's because we simply have already done the work for the client, but can't do the actual deliverable, too small, not the right industry, whatever it might be. And their entire ethos was still driven on the fact that with that, Mitch, we have to tell better stories and we have to continue to stay ahead because if others recognize our position, which keeps happening every single year, that competition is who we're thinking about. And more importantly, we're also thinking about how do we compete with ourselves? How do we keep outperforming what we want to do? And that to me is is music to my ears. So if you're saying there's a world where we have these incumbents who don't need that, who can simply rest and do as they do and be that big, the answer is perhaps they don't need that. I just don't know that history or futures have always been kind to businesses who feel they've got it. They don't require any of this. They don't require any form of innovation, any form of fear or self-talk. I mean, we could look to even Amazon and Jeff Bezos and the theme of day one as this ethos of saying, we will be bankrupted which is something that actually Bezos has said about Amazon prior to leaving the company, well, not leaving the company, but, but stepping aside as CEO uh, fairly recently. So we need to be paying, I believe we need to live like that. If you're able to generate that type of profit by doing absolutely nothing, you're probably in a very small percentage. And I don't believe that anybody can't be disrupted. I just, I haven't seen it. Maybe you know some businesses that 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 are, I haven't seen it. If you were starting that digital marketing agency today, what would you have done differently? It's a great question. For me, the core would have been, we built it around this idea of content, community, and commerce. And I think if I were to start one today, it would be focused much more on just the commerce part. There are so many businesses doing so many things. And because of the evolution of it and where we're at and the facility of which it takes to build and get online, I really do think that the marketing component tied to the commerce at at its core would be my focus. I'm very fortunate to know that the founders of Shopify, who've been friends of mine since they started. And I would would say that even having a Shopify-based agency or commerce-based agency would probably be the path. And again, we're also seeing that in the conversation. You're seeing the major holding companies saying, who do we want to acquire? Well, it's e-commerce, it's commerce-based businesses. And I'm sitting here going, well, no kidding. Of course, that's what you want. But it makes perfect sense if you really think about the evolution, because in theory, if you're building a really powerful commerce brand, you are still playing in that world of, of, again, storytelling, direct response, and the balance between the two. As we talked about, curve vendors are strategic relationships that have a, a profound impact on who we become. Mitch, in thinking about your own journey 
Are there one or two individuals that beyond helping you execute short-term results or, or performance really shaped the leader, the visionary you've become? You know, I don't know if it's one or two. There have been many people who have offered me time, energy, and friendship and have allowed me to cry on their shoulder. There's no doubt. And then the other side of it, that would be one. And then the second side of it is is this idea that most of the people who have really influenced my work, I have never met. They're just work that I follow, read, believe in, study, follow, observe, try to engage with, but haven't ever had the opportunity to either meet and or claim to be a friend. And that's done through the voracious reading that I do or listening to audiobooks as well. So I, I would hesitate to, to name one or two individuals versus the two buckets. And I, I would hope that in my life, I've done my fair share of replicating those models for others in hopes that they can grow their business, their community, uh, be more engaged, be more involved, or refer them to pieces of works that I've read that were impactful for me and may be impactful for, for someone else. That's that's more where I come from, but, but clearly in my life, yeah, there's been individuals who have definitely taken more time than they should have to answer my stupid questions. <laughs> Talking about a uh, build on that for a second, because I often talk about curve benders impacting you know our lives, but there's a more profound opportunity of how do we leave an indelible imprint on the lives of others. What do you believe it takes to be a curve bender in the lives of others? I don't know if there is a checklist so much as a feeling. There are certain people through my career in, in both the entertainment music business, technology business, media business, a volunteer world that I've been in that their values replicate or imitate the values that I would like to, to bring forth in the world. And then what I try to do is identify those people too when they come to me. I mean, you can tell who, who at least I can tell. When someone's knocking on my door for something, if it is self-serving or or truly in need versus you know a terribly created spam message on LinkedIn would be would be the opposite side of that. And it, again, it's a hard thing for me to say it's this or that. I can tell you that I tend to be more open to hearing diverse voices. I am someone who recognizes my complete and utter privilege in this world, being a someone who self-identifies as male, pale, and stale. I'm a middle-aged white guy in North America who speaks multiple languages, has all of my limbs, and has benefited tremendously from the privilege of these systemic platforms and worlds and governments and life than most do, with, without a doubt. And because of that realization, I'm doing my best to help those whose voices aren't heard, forget like mine or even close to, to my world. And that provides its own set of challenges. But at the same time, I feel like that's the world that we all want. And so if I can do my little bit to help bring more of those voices to the front, those tend to be the people that I look to the most. For our audience, if you joined us late, you've been listening to Mitch Joel, who's been called one of North America's leading visionaries by Strategy Magazine. He's an entrepreneur, an investor, an author, trusted advisor, and an MG100 and Thinker's 50 friend. Mitch, what's the best way for our audience to learn more about you and your work? Well, I appreciate that, David. They can just go to sixpixels.com and that'll take you everywhere and anywhere you need to go or just Google Mitch Joel. Thank you for being a guest on the Curve Vendors Podcast. Pleasure to connect with you, David. Thank you for your time. Thank you. 
By the way, three quick points, new season and a renewed commitment to our digital footprint, blog, newsletter, social media. We turn the show notes from these podcasts into more in-depth articles, so you can find those in our completely revamped new blog forthcoming at norgroup.com slash blog. Number two, we're completely revamping our newsletter to make them even more practical and relevant with both a free and a premium version. Check it out at norgroup.com slash newsletter. Lastly, we want to bring the content from these episodes to life. So whether it's a Twitter chat with a guest or live streaming through our Facebook and YouTube channels, or even more recently, a Clubhouse audio conversation, check out our various social media channels with the hashtag CurveBenders for the latest update. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Mitch Joel. Uh, what a fascinating background. And uh, from his media to tech to audio to selling a digital marketing agency, he really is uh, very well known and recognized in, at that intersection of brands and consumers and storytelling. And if you listen to some of his comments uh, you know, trends like this digital commerce. I, I agree. I just, I don't think it's going to go back to where it was. It's just become the way we like to engage. Uh, obviously, by the title of this episode, the whole idea of digital marketing, really focusing on who your brand is most relevant to versus how many and just the sheer number of, of reach that you're after. So this is the NOR summary notes. So hopefully in three minutes or less, I can summarize the session for you and give you some practical, pragmatic ideas. So who are you? Who is your brand trying to engage? Because you cannot be everything to everybody. And those who try is an exercise in futility. So really look at uh, focusing. And we're doing this with our community, with NOR Forum. It is a private community for like-minded professionals around strategic relationships, visual storytelling, and this idea of personal reinvention or nonlinear growth. That's my wheelhouse. And if you come to North Forum, that's what you're coming for. So I'm much more interested in that group than I am the masses. And there's so much... I think misguided, you know, questions by whether it's publishers or anybody else. How many people are you following on LinkedIn and Twitter? How many, how many, what's your social media reach? How many subscribers to your newsletter? Who cares? What's the quality of those relationships and interactions? And do you have not just a list, but do you have list rapport, which I think is one of the key points that Mitch made. Um, really appreciated his comments on uh, NFT. And this idea of providence, of, of originality assigned to a digital asset. And, and I agree. I think beyond the hype, beyond the headlines, it has a, a profound impact. Uh, I appreciated his comments around storytelling. Brands who raise their hand and say, we want to tell a different story. I think those are the ones that are going to consistently and significantly delineate themselves from their competitive peers, and remain relevant in a very dynamic world. Uh, if you look at the key trends that he talked about between, uh, and he's right, the Apple Store, right, becoming much more transactional, right, versus uh, some of the e-commerce that's trying to create a more highly engaged, more highly experiential. Again, not just retail, but what are you doing with your both personal brand, but also if you're in a position to 
influence or impact your organization's brand, I think those are going to be critical. Just a heads up that uh, Mitch is going to be our guest on LinkedIn Live today at noon Eastern. So I hope you join us there. I also turned the show notes from these into more in-depth articles. So join us in the North Forum to discuss uh, some of these topics. We have some fabulous, fabulous guests coming up in upcoming sessions. So uh, let's see, Stuart Craner and Des Dearlove, the founders of Thinkers50, uh, Erica Dwan, Harry Kramer, Michael Watkins, Jeff Parker. So I hope you'll subscribe to where to Curve Vendors Podcast wherever you get your podcast or at norgroup, N-O-U-R group.com slash podcast. I'm so grateful for all of our listeners on the Curve Vendors Podcast. I'd love to hear from you with ideas, with suggestions, with guests you'd love to hear from at this intersection of future of work, strategic relationships, and nonlinear growth. You can simply email podcast at norgroup.com or follow us on various social media channels where I use the hashtag Curve Vendors to keep you posted on our latest progress.